Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. The other day I decided to re-watch, probably for the 20th time, if not more, The Bells of St. Mary, the companion movie to Going My Way, both with Bing Crosby playing the kind and faithful priest Charles Chucklemally. Yes, it being the Christmas season, I'm watching the bevy of old favorites that remind me of an imperfect, but in my mind, better time than the one in which we currently all find ourselves. We are in a world that requires us to disclaim, to clarify, so when I use the word imperfect, it is because, despite the idea that human beings can perfect themselves by the dint of their own pronouncements, it is impossible in this life because of sin. Sin hasn't gone away. So the United States, for example, was founded by imperfect people, of whom imperfect people of today, who think they are perfect, demand a perfection that sin makes impossible. But what those people did is to present an ideal to which they asked themselves and the succeeding generations to live up to. The effort to do so, to combat the imperfection, was done by founding a society based upon Judeo-Christian premises. They noted what we ought to be. They knew that they and we weren't there, but they strove to do so they often failed. They sometimes succeeded. Sometimes people died to aim for that ideal in order to defeat, for example, in the Civil War, the states that promoted the evil, the evil of slavery. My point is that I know the past wasn't perfect, but in the effort to create a human-centered perfection that cannot be achieved without God, we have, in large part, become worse, a worse society. So, bottom line, for me, the past of Father O'Malley is one for which I long and which I know will never come back. It's gone. But I can't help think about it and how familiar and safe the movie made me feel and how it resonated with much of my own youth. So much of the context of that movie about a priest who goes into a beloved but failing parochial school to try to decide its fate, and who becomes the superior and friend of the nun who runs the school, was true to my experience of my young Catholic years between the late 1950s and the early 1960s. Now, the movie was made in the mid-40s, but by the time I got to my school, things had not yet shifted into pandemonium, if you will, and I got a taste of the more traditional, but yet in some ways more serene Catholicism. And I got to thinking about my grammar school and high school, which used to coexist until 1968, my graduation from eighth grade when the grammar school was discontinued. It was, and remains, the Academy of Mount St. Ursula, a haven on a hill in the Bronx at Bedford Park Boulevard. It might as well have been set in the Bells of St. Mary's, for the building housing the grammar school was from the late 19th century, more castle-like than anything I had ever seen. Next to it would be the high school building, built pure mid-20th century, and so in its design. A little history of the school, and I admit I remain incredibly proud of it. 
Mount St. Ursula is the oldest regularly operating Catholic school in New York. It was founded in the year 1855 by the Ursulines and was situated originally in the Morrisania area of the Bronx. And then, in 1892, it moved to the area where I became a kindergartner first in a one-room, a true one-room schoolhouse on the large property, and then into that convent building, which once had been a monastery and then a boarding school and then a day school from my first to eighth grade. Even then, in a way, it was a time warp experience before any of us had ever heard or thought of that phrase. Even by 1959, a building like that was not the usual place for children to go to school. Our teachers were, as I said, the Ursulines, known for their teaching prowess. But then there were many orders teaching, the Sisters of Charity, the Dominicans. In those days, the numbers of the orders, or in the orders, were plentiful. These strong women, and even then we knew they were strong, were our primary educators and the forces in our lives. I saw priests who celebrated Mass, but the frame was always these strong, smart women. It wasn't just because I was little that everything in that building seemed big and yet oddly warm and secure. It occurs to me that my preference for spaces with lots of wood and dark tones and big windows comes from that time that I spent in that cavernous educational incubator from ages 5 to 14 before I moved on into the building from my own century next door, the high school. Everything had substance physically. When you went down the wide stairwell, you held onto wood banisters, thick and smooth, all of it right out of some movie, a stairwell the moving down on which seemed seemed properly accompanied by an orchestral movie theme, something out of, say, Rebecca or Gone with the Wind. Each landing had a long, ornate, I even think it was stained glass window. Even our little lockers, the ones that we used to be poised against in nuclear war drills, this was the age of the Cold War, were made of wood. On one side of the first floor, there was a music corridor for those who took piano lessons, a $2 addition a week to the tuition. There were multi-rooms within the corridor, each with its own small baby grand piano. I had a desire to take lessons from the time Mother Anna, who even in the late 50s or early 60s was probably in her 80s, had sat with me on the stool of an upright piano in the kindergarten house, a part of the property where there were many fruiting apple trees near which we played Red Rover and Freeze Tag. I really wanted to play the piano, but it wasn't until I was nine that my parents let me take the lessons. It's a regret that, with my teen years and the usual angst, I did not continue. I had been told I was talented. Mrs. Cullinan, who succeeded the elderly nun who originally taught me, thought that I was a candidate for Juilliard. But when practicing became a chore rather than a joy, I gave it up. The second floor had its mysterious spaces, or they were mysterious to me. Behind two double doors, you entered a darkish corridor. On the left, there was the convent library. Books, no doubt, from even the prior century were housed in there. The room inspired silence. Just outside its doors was an enormous painting, I mean from ceiling to nearly the floor. I realize now, as I've been speaking, how faded some of the accuracy of my memory of the details. 
but the painting of St. Ursula and her companions traversing a mountain right behind them, chased by the hordes of Attila the Hun. St. Ursula was reported to have been martyred by the barbarian leader. In 1968, or just afterward, she was removed from the liturgical calendar of saints as having never existed, along with, you may remember, St. Christopher. There remains debate about her existence, as there is a basilica in Cologne that references her and contains bones that might be hers and others. As far as I'm concerned, she remains fully entrenched as a Catholic saint. As a child, I had never seen a painting this large anywhere. This was before I went to museums and before the fullness of my education. One thing that I realized is that here I was, born into a working-class neighborhood and going to a school in a working-class neighborhood, and I had the opportunity at an early age to be exposed to the largeness of both Christian and Western civilization. When, as an adult, I finally went to Europe, some of the architecture and the sense of history was already instilled in me merely because of the building in which I was exposed to as a child. At the time, I didn't think much of it. I had nothing to compare it to. This was my school life. A little further down the hall were another set of double doors. Now, these doors on both sides were not made of the wood. They were later additions and were some kind of metal. And they led, in one part of them, to rooms, I guess you say, the cells of the nuns, which I never saw, and then also to an entrance, which we did not usually use, a big reception area with a wooden door with beautiful stained glass leading to the outside with a bilateral stairwell. That means as you'd leave the outer doors, there would be a stair down to the left and a stair down to the right. If you were a family member of one of the nuns or another visitor, you'd come up those stairs and there would be a porter, a nun, to greet you while you waited for the particular sister you were visiting. When I was grown and had moved to Los Angeles, there was a grammar nun I used to visit. When I was a child, her name was Mother Cornelia. She was the fifth grade teacher and most people were terrified of her and indeed she could be tyrannical. You could get a demerit for talking where silence was required or not paying attention in class. I myself, though a goody two-shoes par excellence, got a demerit, and I think it was like 10 points on a grade of class that I was in, for quite literally twiddling my thumbs during one of the classes. I was listening, I really was, but I guess it wasn't all that exciting. Anyway, I visited in that location many years later, but when I was a child, it was where we went, silently again, during fire drills, to line up on either side of those stairs and then to return to our classrooms when the drill was over. And another memory attached to the reception area were several parlors, I assume for whoever visited or perhaps for occasions that the nuns had, but who knew as a child. But what I do remember is something that today's thinkers would find odd at best. When a nun died, one of these parlors was used as a place of repose before burial. There would be an open casket. And perhaps as part of our education about life, death, and eternity, which was sort of something one absorbed in that environment, we children were taken to go and pay our respects to the deceased nuns. Occasionally we knew of them. We knew them. Mostly we did not. 
I suspect for us, as it was for me, it was a matter of curiosity. We certainly did not conceive of ourselves as ever being old enough to die, so seeing an elderly nun fully garbed with her yellowed vows and a rosary in her hands was more of an archaeological experience. Not that we would have understood archaeology at that point, but it was more of that kind of an experience than one which would give us pause about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. But until I would come back to see Mother Cornelia, who by the 1970s was Sister Helen, and meet with her in one of those parlors, I suppose by that time of my life the mystery of the place had worn off. It was no longer used as a school. The speech center that had replaced the music rooms was still there, but in a few years, that too would close. But back in the day, among my favorite personal spaces was probably the art room. For another extra $2 a week, you could take art classes using oils. It had the wood, the room did, had the wood and the high ceilings that the rest of the building had. It was, if I remember, a rectangular room with a rectangular table or series of tables put together, covered by newspaper, to prevent staining. But it was also the one space where I recall feeling utterly free in the firm frame. Mother Ignatius, who was the sister of the principal, Mother Emmanuel, ran it. She loved all animals, but especially birds, and she had two pet sparrows that she often freed during the class. Mostly they would stay in her wimple space near her shoulder, but sometimes they could fly around. I learned the early rubrics of paint strokes. I loved the smell of linseed oil and turpentine. One of my first paintings was in some library exhibition. I still have the painting somewhere among my mementos. I must mention the old chapel. It was behind the convent. Unfortunately, I have no pictures of it, and my memory is less than sketchy of what the inside looked like. That's why the bells of St. Mary and going my way are so evocative for me because the overall look is the overall look and feel that I recall. It, too, was wood, outside and inside. It must not have been very large, but to a child it felt cavernous. I can't remember the look of the sanctuary at all, but I know it was ornate. It was at the wood, I think, the wood rail of this chapel, that I received the Eucharist for the first time, wearing the traditional wedding-like dress, including a veil. In my case, the veil kept falling down into my face throughout the day, and I stepped onto the hem of the dress over and over until I created a tear in the waist area, which upset my mother. I had that little dress for years and years, even out here in California, but I didn't preserve it as carefully as I might have, and one day, when I took it out of my closet, it crumbled in my hands. Such is life. I have a friend who was also there that day who has pretty much all of the clothes from those days, including, I am guessing, the communion dress. I do remember two things, certainly. One was that, as you see in English churches, on the side walls on either side, there were choir chairs with carved long backs and the seat area open to place one's music or Bibles or prayer books. We sat on those quite a lot, along with the usual pews. The confessional, now these are the days before calling the sacrament the sacrament of reconciliation, had its center space as usual for the priest with a door, but the spaces for the penitent had no door but instead a weighted 
thick velvet curtain as a cover. Now, I think they still exist. I think I've seen them over the years in some churches, particularly in the East, but somehow a curtain rather than a door emphasized the equally weighty nature of taking off the soul of one's sins. It was not perfectly soundproof, as one might guess, but we were well trained in the custody of the ears as well as the eyes. One made sure to stand far enough away from the curtains so as not to hear some child say that he or she disobeyed his or her mother, the most likely of the sins of a seven-year-old child. The other thing that I loved was that this was the first place I ever heard the Westminster chimes. You know, da 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 I don't know where the sound actually came from or where the clock was, but on the hour and the quarter hour, it would strike and resonate through the space, and it made me so happy. The sound still makes me happy on a clock, two clocks that I have here in my own apartment. There are logistical things I can't remember. I'm not sure how we entered the old chapel. I think it was through a path in the back of the convent, outside, surrounded by hedges. And I also have a memory that my favorite teacher, Mother Ignatius of the art class, that's the area where she used to feed birds on a regular basis. But I also have a memory that when I forgot my chapel veil, the lack of which meant that we young girls could not go inside the church, remember those days men who wore hats took off their hats and women were to place the veil on their heads both as signs of reverence to God, an act of humility by the wearer, and a recognition of the presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. So I always had to have 50 cents around to get another. It was, alas, common for us all to forget our chapel veils, in case they weren't full mantillas, but a circular lace item that a bobby pin affixed to the top of our heads. Until one had a proper chapel veil, one would wait outside on a single wooden pew, the place had not only physical but spiritual substance. I felt magic of the place as a child, although in a way it was so integrated into my experience that it seemed natural to leave the brick, concrete, and tar of my apartment building and be transported day after day to this tree-filled bucolic hill. Oh yes, I forgot that there were trees, bushes, and grass and flowers everywhere and sit in classrooms of high ceilings and long windows. The whole thing reeked of gravitas long before I ever knew that word. I was ten when that edifice was, if I remember, the church edifice, the chapel edifice, condemned as being unsafe, and by 1965, when I was eleven, in 1965, smack dab in the middle of the fury that was the outcome of the Vatican Council, a circular, white marble, modern art stained glass chapel was built, which we, of course, called the New Chapel. It was probably around this time that we fifth graders and our parents were told that ours would be the last grammar school class ever at the Academy of Mount St. Ursula. Even a mere five or six years, having been immersed in the ways of the Latin Mass and the wooden cocoon in which one could feel the mystery of God, I felt disappointment at the modernization that seemed somehow to minimize God. Could I have expressed that? No. 
but the radical nature of the change I couldn't miss. The times they were a-changing. I graduated from grammar school in the new chapel. I was accepted into the high school and began the more extended modern leg of my education in the mid-century building. Occasionally, I'd go back to the old convent building, one summer working as a volunteer at the speech center with a girlfriend in the very space where I had been a little girl shepherding, now, other children in between their rehabilitative speech classes. And I'd visit Sister Helen, who had a little tiny room where she was doing remedial reading classes for kids from other schools. But this was the time of Jesus Christ Superstar and more secular, earthy concerns. In fact, I believe that the very first Earth Day was celebrated in 1970, and it was of great moment. But the education, it was always stellar. Sister Jenny taught religion. She was so much younger than most of our other teachers, and she was among the first to wear the new habit. The others followed. Mayor Carmel was our French teacher. Sister Cecilia was our eccentric but lovable math teacher. Sister St. John was our equally eccentric, slightly more strict but lovable English teacher. Something new was added. A couple of lay teachers, Mrs. Hebron, Algebra, and Mr. Monte. Yes, a man, biology. What was happening in part was that with the opening of the windows of the church to the world, the world was also making its way inside the church, some good to be sure, but also some not so good, the results of which some say we are reaping and not to the church's benefit. A girl or two got into what we used to call trouble in the family way, but that probably happened before, the only difference being that these things were no longer being kept secret. Some would say this was a good, maybe so, but none of that is really the focus of today's podcast. I suppose it's more about the things that formed me and many of my friends and the inexorability of time and change, change which is often very hard and again, some good and necessary and some disruptive. The grounds remained the same for as long as I was there and long after, but the realities of dying elder nuns and low vocations became hard to beat, and there were fewer and fewer nuns available to teach. We lost lots of Catholics from the fold, as you know. For whatever reason, and in other places we have and can debate them, this affected all sorts of church properties. Then other problems of the modern world created the need for funds and the need to sell church property. The upkeep of a place like the Mount was enormous in cost. An income comparable wasn't coming in any longer. The Mount began selling off its property, ultimately, of course, and though it tried to save the old convent for its own uses, the costs were enormous and, as I understand it, development for use as part of the school could not be achieved. You'd need staff for that. Other parts of the property down where the old kindergarten building had been and another of the Bedford convents were leased and or sold for senior and low-income housing. These, of course, are enormous goods and certainly in line with the church's mission, but it meant that pretty much the only part left of the property for use was the area of the mid-century high school, which happily has survived into the 21st century, where many private parochial schools have not done so. I've gone through a great deal of personal turmoil about these changes. I haven't been back on the property since probably the 1990s, and I'm guessing from photos that I have seen, I would not recognize it. Happily, the old convent where I went to school as a child is still there, but it has been 
rehabilitated and made into a senior housing space. Actually, I think if you want to look at it, you can. The spaces, many of them are recognizable to me and they evoke my memories. The architects who did the work are called Oaklander, Coogan and Vito. OCV Architects, or you can find it ocvarch.com, and you will find all of their projects on there. Many of them, it looks like some Catholic facilities. They did an enormously wonderful job, and you can see some of the pictures of what they did. In fact, the parlor I was talking about is there still and looks pretty much as it did when I was a kid. So the tenants of those buildings, of that building, is, are getting the benefit of this wonderful space. It includes a view in some of the photos of the new chapel, which is no longer a church or a chapel. It's decommissioned and is now used as a community room. And I have to tell you, I admittedly prefer it as a community room than as a chapel, although the sad thing is that there are no longer official chapels on the premises, and that is of some sadness to me after years and years and years. I and others have debated these changes, the nature of them and the need for them, but there is one thing I'm coming to as the 50th anniversary of my graduation from the high school approaches. I loved the place, and I cannot help but still love it. Five or six years before a woman's movement, the nuns of Mount St. Ursula made it clear to me that I could do or be anything I wanted in my womanhood. Education was key, always key. I didn't need a single slogan to be empowered. Motherhood, working, teaching, faith, they were all part of a whole, a tapestry. They were not counter to each other. We were diverse ethnically, immigrants change, and so the diversity and the ethnic makeup of the people who live in the community and who go to the school changes. But the one thing that has not changed is purpose or mission, which was serviam, to serve others. I had, in the last years, sort of stepped away from the Mount because my Maybe my generational sensibilities, maybe my even conservative sensibilities had been wounded. And in that regard, change that I felt was not always well thought out in all the institutions out there drove me crazy. And I still think there is much validity to my position, but I know this. I realize that I have to return to a full-throated support of the place that largely formed me. Mount St. Ursula is an oasis in a difficult modern world, and the girls still formed within its walls are blessed as I was blessed. And I realize I want them to have what I had, as much of it as can be given to them. I recently saw a promotional ad of a discussion between a graduate, more of my generation, and a soon-to-be graduate. They sat in the little gazebo that stands at the entrance of the path to the high school. It was there when I was a child. It is there now, I think, and someone can perhaps tell me who knows, that it's the same structure, maybe repaired over the years, but the same in which I sat with my friends years ago. The two talked of their experiences of the Mount, and while clearly there is much difference, for the times are different, the underlying theme of education and servium had not changed at all, COVID permitting. 
I might be stepping onto that familiar and no longer familiar part of those grounds in the spring of 2022 for my reunion visit. I think I want to renew my support for them in my little ordinary way going forward, leaving my reservations, which I have had about the direction of the whole modern church and the world, as many do, aside. I don't know if they still use or even acknowledge the school song, very much a bells of St. Mary's style of music and lyrics. Even when I was a teenager, they were a source of a bit of giggling. I found them online in the 1997 edition online of the Mount St. Ursula yearbook already 20-some years ago because I wasn't sure I remembered them completely. So let me read it to you. Girls of Mount St. Ursula, staunch and true, life calls unto you, nation home renew. Dream not the hours away in joy or pain. School days wreathed in memory sweet are reverent gain. Neath standard of St. Angela, loved guardian guide, in faith, hope, and charity, arts and science abide. Angel eyes are shining through, fear not the battle strain, all aglow with purpose new, God's kingdom to attain. Girls of Mount St. Ursula, joyous each day, for God and native land, labor and pray. You know, it's so old style, it's kind of corny, but gosh, it's warming, at least to this old girl. What battle are they talking about? Maybe when it was written, it was World War One or World War Two. I'm pretty sure, by the way, that the nun who wrote it was someone I knew. I want to say her name was Mother Alma. I could be wrong. One of my friends could correct me. And she suffered from some kind of spinal stenosis. And I think she was... She was sort of sideways in her her walking stature. And when she died, and we went to see her in the parlor, and I'm pretty sure it was her, they, of course, had straightened her out. So there we were as little children trying to figure that reality out. But she was a person of a wholly different generation, even more different than my own to the current generation. Anyway, the whole point is that the battle could refer not only to the strain of the battle of real wars, but the strain of the battle within and without, the one that is for God or against him. The whole point of it all, the education, the service, is achieving God's kingdom. As I said, I've been reserved in the last few years in my support of the Mount because the changes so rattled me. This reverie bids me to return to that support and gratefulness that the school still survives amid the challenges of the modern world. My reservations are insignificant, I think, against that reality. I am still a girl of Mount St. Ursula, and I share that with many fortunate women, past, present, and future, which can only continue with support. One day, another alumna will record her memories of how she was educated under the banner of St. Angela, the founder of the Ursulines. That's a legacy I want to be part of, in heart, mind, and soul, as well as in experience. And so ends another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me, a series of personal reflections today about my education at the Academy of Mount St. Ursula in the Bronx, New York, which still is there and which I pray will remain there for good.
talk to you next week.